Hey guys, welcome back to the You Don't Wanna Know, the podcast. So first things first, I just want to apologize. I am late by a week for releasing an episode, but it's still Monday. I am recording (laughs) the same day I'm releasing, but it's okay. Um, I've had a crazy couple of, like, two months. It's been insane. Um, I believe I talked about what happened to my family the last podcast, so I won't go into, like, super detail, but my family um, went through a fire about a month or two ago at this point, Um, so that's just been horrible having to deal with that, so that's kind of where my main focus has been, and then also I've um, joined some other extracurricular activities that have been taking up a large portion of my time as well, and then I also have a full-time job, so it's just been like pulling me to pieces, so (laughs) I've got about a month left of my craziness, and then I should be okay, but hey, we're here, we made it. I just want to say thank you to anyone that went and watched the live stream for my family, We did a fundraiser, the Titan Media Collective did, um, for my family, and that was really fun. We just got to play a bunch of games and do some trivia that I did horribly at. I always think that I'm good at that stuff, and I never am. So, no shock, apparently. Movie trivia. You'd think that I could get it, but guess not. I have a very specific type of thing that I like and no one else does, so I never get recognition for that stuff. But it's fine. I'm really not that mad about it. Um, Let's just not talk about it. Okay. So um, once again, thank you to anyone that joined me for that. It was really great. And it was really just amazing to see my community come together and just take care of my family like that. Because, gosh, it's just so hard these past couple of days. And my dad, he's 62, I want to say. Yeah, 62. And he just has to work so hard. I'm sorry if you hear the dryer in the background. I hope you can't. I'm going to just keep talking so you can't hear it. So my dad, he's 62 and he's just working his butt off. He's working harder than anyone my age. I'm just trying to, let's just pat. I'm going to pause until this passes. Okay, sorry. The dryer was just being really loud. But my dad, he's working so hard and it's just so, it's heartbreaking to see him having to go through that when he should just be like retired at this point, you know, but he's just, he can't now. And it's just breaking my heart that I can't be there every single day, every single second to help him. So just once again, thank you so much if you were able to be a part of that. And if you could just give your hopes or your hopes, your thoughts and prayers for my family, that would be just unbelievable because, oh man, it's going to be a journey. It's been two months. We got power. I want to say like three weeks ago, like full power and we've been running off a generator to like pump the water so we finally got full power but we have to rebuild our entire shed our entire cooling system cooler system and get all the supplies we need for the season to like carry vegetables put vegetables on display for the markets so it's just gonna be a lot but sorry I didn't mean to get in that um that like tangent on that stuff um let's talk about movies okay So I decided, so I have had no free time whatsoever. The free time I have, I use for sleep and that's like six hours, if that. So I decided to do a throwback. I don't think I've talked about this movie and I've realized how hard this is going to be to not repeat anything. But if I repeat something, that means you need to watch it. Like, no, scratch that. If I repeat something, that means you should have watched it yesterday. Every movie that I give you that I rate well is gold, and I expect you to watch all of them if I rate them well, okay? It's just that simple. I have great taste in movies. I'm just kidding. I actually have, like, very weird tastes, so a lot of people probably won't like what I like. But this movie that I'm about to recommend is, like, pure gold. So this is definitely not something that you want to watch lightheartedly. You have to sit down and ready yourself. It's called The Last Watch. And it is amazing and hard to watch sometimes. Um, It's about these cops who are in this rougher part of, I think, LA. But it's just, it's incredible. It's, oh my gosh, the first time I watched it, I just, I I cried. So you're probably going to cry, but that's okay. Because sometimes you need to cry. 
Um, another movie that I did watch was Nefarious, and it was... Sorry, I'm going to adjust this really quick. There we go. It's about a psychologist that goes to a prison to interview a man who is possessed. Oh my gosh, guys. It is so incredibly thought-provoking. Like, I saw that with my brother, and we... It was like midnight or 1230 when the movie got out and I had to be up super early, but I stayed and sat in the theater and I'm sure people were pissed at me for staying so long, but I stayed and sat and talked with my brother for 30 minutes about that movie because it was so thought provoking. But the thing that was crazy to me was I, okay, so obviously I've seen a lot of movies like all around the spectrum and I've never felt so incredibly uncomfortable because someone was in so much pain and it wasn't like physical pain like a saw movie it was like mental emotional pain because the demon was torturing this man it was just unreal and i i legitimately wanted to get up and leave because i was so sad for this man who was being tortured so it's about him and the psychologist doesn't believe in demons or anything like that. So he's trying to see if this guy is actually mentally like crazy or not, you know, to see if he actually deserves to get um, the capital punishment. So it just goes on to that. And then um, what uh, I guess I shouldn't talk anymore so I don't ruin it. But that one I also highly recommend because it's a great movie that makes you think about stuff. Two other movies that will make you think about things, though, because I also went on this tangent as well. One I think I've already recommended. It's called The Night House, and it's such a twist that it blew me away, and it just left me left me like continuously thinking. Like there's a, a line in this movie that goes, "You were right. There is nothing. Nothing is after you. You're safe now," and. I think about it like once a week, I think, where I'm like, oh my gosh, how did they come up with that? And then the other one is called The Black Swan, and it just goes over the mental anguish that dancers, ballerina dancers go through because they have to put themselves through so much, like their bodies go through so much because they have to be just so perfect to be a ballerina dancer, or at least that was the case back when. I don't know if it still is because I don't really follow that stuff not really my cup of tea but that movie was crazy like I literally stopped and was like what did I just watch that was insane all right now on to the next part so this is the weekly horror horror calendar we're on January 9th so we're falling a little bit behind but that's okay so this is part one 1000 bodies 10,000 years since the 18th century nearly a thousand bodies have been found in the peat bogs of northern Europe, excuse me. Some dating as far back as 18,000, excuse me, 18, uh, 8,000 BC. They span countries, sexes, ages, and social classes, but the most, but most have in common is the way they died. They died under violent circumstances. The corpses are typically well-preserved skin, internal organs, hair, nails, stomach content, and even their clothes remain. This is due to a biology of the bog, a molecule known as Vagnin, I think is how you say it, found in decaying peat moss interact with the enzymes released in the bacteria of purifying corpses, preventing the microbiomes from breaking down decaying matter. The only thing missing from the bodies is a skeletal system. The, the sphagnin, that's so hard to say, sphagnin, makes, the rub, uh, makes them rubbery and dissolve them completely. Peat moss also contains humic acid, which sucks water from soft tissue, turning the skin into a bronzed hide. This chemical reaction allows us to speculate on violent deaths that occurred a millennial ago. So that's pretty freaking wild. I feel like I should do like a story on that. So let's find out if I do in the future. Stay tuned. All right, here's what we all are waiting for, though. Here we go. I don't know if anyone else is satisfied by that, but I 100% am because that's just a great noise. It always makes me think of um, Princess Diaries when he does the Velcro and he's like, I love that noise. And it's like, why? It's like, it's not a bad noise, but it's nothing special in my opinion. Sorry, I keep moving the mic, but I'm done now, I think. We'll find out. Okay, so now the actual real reason why you're here, if it's not for the paper ripping, it's for the story. So this one, uh, this case is about the Russell family. 
the Russell family tragedy in Chillenden. So on July 9th of 1996, the day started off pretty normal. Sean Russell, Dr. Sean Russell actually, brought his daughter daughters to school on his way to work. Dr. Lynn Russell, his wife, stayed at home and did a few things around the house and in the garden. She just like kind of tidied up, got some groceries, she rearranged a couple things and then went out to the garden. Around four o'clock, she was going to pick up her daughters from her the swimming gala. So this is taking place in Europe. So like a swimming gala, I assume is like a swimming competition, a swimming lesson. So like some things might sound a little weird. So she was picking them up from the swimming gala at Goodstone Primary School in Chillenden, Kent. The family was originally from Northern Wales, but they moved to Granary Cottage to be closer to Chillenden. Um, because that's where Sean, the father, works. And they he didn't want to do a long commute anymore. He wanted to spend more time with his family. So just super, super wholesome. Very sweet. So like I said, Lynn is going to pick up the girls. They only had one car. So she's walking and she brought the dog with her. The dog's name was Lucy. And she was just a cute little pup. So she's walking the girl or getting the girls and picks them up. And they're just walking home. It's very nice, like open area. Just a small town kind of feel to it. And one of their friends actually saw them walking and she had her mom honk the horn because she was like, oh, they don't have to walk. I can give them a ride. So she honked the horn and they're waving, but they were just too far away and they never saw her. And unfortunately, this kind of haunted the friend for, for a very long time. But we'll get to that in a minute. So it was a pleasant and quiet day and they were just kind of enjoying nature, you know, just going for a walk with the dog. Josie actually waved to a man who was driving by in a vehicle, but all of a sudden that vehicle stops in front of them and it stops in their path. So Josie, Lynn, and Megan, her sister, I don't know if I mentioned that. So it was Lynn, the mom, Megan, Josie's sister, and obviously Josie. So this guy stops with his car and they're on Cherry Garden Lane and he stops in front of them in their direct path. He gets out of the car, goes into his backseat, and he grabs a freaking hammer. And he walks up to them, and he demands money. He's just very irrational. And Lynn, she's trying to be calm. She's trying to stay like there with the girls and keep them calm by not freaking out. And she's like, well, I don't have any money. I just went and picked up my daughters. I walked here with my dog. But if you'd like, we can go to my house, and I can give you money. And this like set him off and he just was so upset by this and he kind of just blew a gasket almost. So Lynn just tells Josie, run to the nearest house to get help. So Josie somehow starts running because I feel like I would just be frozen in that moment. And unfortunately, as she's making the turn around, I think it's like a little bend in the road. He catches up to her and hits her in the head with a hammer and he picks her up and he walks her and he grabs the three of them and their dog and walks them into this thick copse which is a small group of trees in Europe specifically if you didn't know so he tied he tied them up and blindfolded them with uh, their own items so they had a swimming towel and he cut pieces off of that and one of the girls was wearing a um some tights some nylons so he used that as well so, and then also a shoelace. He used a shoelace. So he blindfolded Josie and tied her up first and tied her to a tree. And he said that everything was going to be okay and he was going to let them go. But she knew that was far from the truth because she could hear him beating on her mom and her sister. And unfortunately, Lynn was hit 15 times, which caused so much trauma. Like, physical trauma and then Megan was hit at least seven times fracturing her skull and exposing her brain then after he was done with Megan he went up to Josie and started beating her as well and she had severe lacerations all over her head from being hit 16 times as well as a crushed skull she also had extensive tearing uh, tearing that covered her entire brain and she had exposed brain tissue behind her left ear. They were beaten so severely that they were all presumed dead on site. 
So Lynn was 45, Megan was 6, and Josie was 9. So meanwhile, all this is unfortunately taking place. At the home around 510, a family friend goes to try and pick up Josie for brownies. So they knock on the door and they don't get any response and they just kind of leave because they had a place to be. Sean Russell, the father and husband, get home around 6 to all the doors being locked and it was a dark house. The only person home, or like not person, but the dog was home, a golden retriever named Jackie. So it was their older golden retriever. But he wasn't alarmed by this because he assumed that Josie just went to Brownie's and that Lynn and Megan were just walking the dog. Around 8 o'clock, Sean gets a phone call from his friend, from Lynn's friend as well, named Liz. And Liz was calling to check in and see why Josie wasn't home because Liz was the person that was picking up Josie's for Brownie's. And this was the moment that he just started to panic. Rightfully so. He said the only reason that she would miss brownies was if their dog Lucy had gotten out and everyone was looking for the girls or was looking for the dog. So he starts casually or he starts calling um, the vet. He starts calling around other places. He actually starts calling hospitals, um, the casualty centers to see if like maybe they got hit by a car while they were searching because it is like a little bit narrower of a road. And the bends are a little tight, but he's trying to stay calm. He thinks like he's being irrational at this point, And he almost like just thinks he's being bothersome by doing this. So he's trying to stay calm, but 830 rolls around and he's like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And I don't blame him. So he literally gets in his car and starts driving up and down Cherry Garden Lane to look for his family. And this is such a haunting thing to say, but... At one point he passed, or maybe multiple times, he passed the spot where they were. But of course he couldn't see that because they were hidden. So at nine o'clock he calls the police and tells them what's going on. And they don't really take it that seriously. At 10 o'clock, Liz calls again, the one that was supposed to pick up Josie for brownies. She calls Sean and asks for an update because she's a good friend and she's worried too. After she calls him and hears the worry in his voice. She's such a good friend. She tells her husband, okay, we're going over there. We need to be with him because he's obviously not okay. And who would be at this point? So Sean is just racking his brain, trying to think of any reason why Lynn would take the girls. Maybe she got upset with him. Maybe he forgot something. Maybe they had a fight and he didn't realize they were fighting. Maybe they wanted to go somewhere for a surprise who knows but he's just scratching at his brain trying to figure out what it could be and this is actually a quote from him he says by now i was too well okay imagine it's in a british voice though by now i was too worried to be overly concerned at at the suggestion i started giving the more excuse me and this is about him talking to the police i started giving them more thorough descriptions and telling them what i had already done that evening to find lynn and the girls It was late enough now that I felt no embarrassment at calling the police, but I was still clinging on to the notion that a benign explanation could be found for Lynn's and the girl's disappearance. The worst thing that I now considered was that one of them might have been involved in an accident. I tried to avert the painful thoughts of one or the other girls being hit by a car as they walked down the narrow lanes near to home. It never entered my mind that something more sinister might have befallen them. The questioning continued and the frustration started to impinge on the feeling of fear for my family's safety that was now being consu- that was now consuming me. How long was this going to on- go on before the police were going to do something? At about 11.30, the bus full of police officers skidded into the gravel driveway next to the granary cottage, accompanied by a white van with, dog ser- with a dog search team. Excuse me. At about midnight, they set off in the direction of Cherry Lane Garden. Oh, Cherry Garden Lane. Now I started to go numb with worry. My brain was not allowing me to think beyond this hospitalization for one of the girls, as was the worst possible scenario. I was hanging on to a, in a kind of limbo, with a vague hope that someone would arrive with Lynn and the girls, smiling in embarrassment in the back of their car, and some sort of rational explanation for all of it. I accepted another cup of tea from Liz and John, and we spoke very little as we paced up and down the outside of the driveway in the darkness. 
So at about two fifty, or excuse me, twelve fifteen the next day. So that was the end of the quote. At about twelve fifteen the next day, so a.m., the police found Megan's swimming suit. And then about fifteen minutes later, they found three bodies and just presumed them dead because of the extent of their injuries. So this is another quote from uh, Sean, the dad. Lights glowed in the police cars parked at the end of the driveway, and radios crackled. Suddenly, at about 1 a.m., another police car pulled into the parking lot near the house. From the darkness emerging emerged the two officers who had questioned me earlier. One spoke quietly to Liz and John, while the other asked me in a subdued voice to accompany him to the back of the house. So the police officer had to tell Sean that his entire family was gone. And he just fell apart, rightfully so. And luckily, Liz and her husband were there to kind of help him. But this did not mean that the police officer's work was done. This means that the work had basically just started. So emergency workers arrived at the scene as soon as they were called. Well, they arrived at the scene. They were called right away. And they got to work right away to check the bodies to see if there were any clues. And while they were doing that, they found that Josie had a very faint pulse. Dr. Michael Parks, who was the cop or the police officer's doctor on call, picked her up in his arms and rushed her to King's uh, King's College Hospital. And they kept guard on her for 24 hours because they had no idea why this would happen and they don't know if like she was targeted so they just wanted to basically check off all the boxes to make sure she was safe they asked dr russell to come to the station and answer a few questions so i'm kind of bouncing back and forth they asked him almost right after they told him what had happened so this was about 2 30 a.m and even though it was super late um and his friends told him not to go he did it anyways just because he was so pumped up on adrenaline from just these horrible events that were unfolding. At about 6 a.m., he was told that one of his daughters was still alive. They also said that she was beaten so severely that they couldn't tell which one it was. But then Sean goes, does she have any freckles or no? And this was to identify her. And that's just like such a, ugh. it's so sad to think that he had to ask that. But Sean is taken to the hospital to see his daughter around 9 a.m. And even though she was covered in medical equipment, he could see the little freckles on her nose and he knew that it was Josie. Finally, Sean was finally able to catch her breath, his breath, excuse me, because he could, he knew that Josie was right there. She was safe so he could sit down. So he did and he grabbed a cup of coffee and that's when he realized that he would have to contact Lynn and his entire family to let them know what was going on. So he started with Lynn's parents, but unfortunately they had already learned from the news that she had passed away. Now that Sean has this huge mountain to overcome, police have their own work. So they start trying to figure out what exactly happened and what monster could have possibly done this. And of course, they have to check off the husband first because he wasn't technically there with them. So he could be someone, but they kind of knew he wasn't. They just wanted to mark him off the list. They cleared him right away because he was on CCTV uh, footage with his alibi of renting library books for his daughter. In the scene of the investigation, though, they found some hairs on the children's shoes that did not belong to a family member and a fingerprint on a lunchbox. They ruled out... A robbery that this couldn't be a robbery because nothing was actually taken he did ask for money they don't find this out right away but he did ask for money but he didn't take anything he just ruffled through their stuff and they assume he was looking for something that he could use to tie them up so prior to the killing they start asking around for witnesses someone said that their lawnmower was stolen near chillenden witnesses that saw this happen said that they couldn't get a look a good look at his face or the license plate of the car that drove uh, drove the lawnmower away. But they did get an idea of what the color of the car was and the model. And they'll find out they knew someone who had that type of car and that color at that time. 
So there was another eyewitness that said that they saw a man with a claw hammer near the windmill by the crime scene at 4.45. Now, this was a beautiful area, guys. This was country. There was a freaking windmill. It was just an open area. It was so scenic and beautiful. And this man just completely ruined it. So they said that they, he was hanging around the windmill, but they didn't see the car nearby. 15 minutes later, a walker, so 15 minutes, 4.45 is when that last took place. 15 minutes later, around 5 o'clock, there was a walker who saw a man with a beige car acting super suspicious near a hedge line. Now, a hedge line is where the bodies were found. And a hedge line is basically like a fence. Well, it's not a fence, but it's like a divider fields. Instead of using fence, you can use natural border, so hedge. So that's what a hedge line is. At 5.30, that same witness went to walk his dog, and the guy was completely gone. He found nothing except a string bag. And later, he would find that, or he would tell the police this, because at first he thought it was nothing. It, they later found that they had blood stains. And of course, when you see something, you're not going to assume it's covered in blood, unless it's like white. So he saw it, he saw the stains, and he just thought it was kind of weird. But once he heard about the accident and everything that happened, that's when he called in to police. So another witness said, oh, and excuse me, in that um, bag was the bloody towel strips and the boot lace. So later, another witness said a lady, or excuse me, this was a lady. She was driving by Station Road, which Station Road leads to Cherry Garden Road, which is where the crime happened. She said a beige car pulled out in front of her and it cut her off basically, so she had to slow down. And she found him very weird and his driving was kind of crazy and he just kept looking back in his rear view mirror at her and she was just tr so troubled by his actions that she went to the police and actually gave, um, it's called an e-fit, which is like an electronic composite sketch, I guess. I don't know why that's better than a composite sketch, but whatever. But she gave that. Two other witnesses came forward. One said that they saw a beige vehicle close to the area. And another said that they saw a man acting really weird near a spot where they actually found the bag of evidence. This witness also made a, com um, a composite sketch, that e-sketch, that matched very closely to the one that the lady who was in the car um, made as well. So in the police investigation, they found that string bag and it contained, like I said, the bloody towels, they found those two days after the crime had happened. They were thrown into an overgrown hedge. So unfortunately, the leads kind of started to dry out because they just didn't have much. This was a crime outside. So unfortunately, there's not many like surfaces where you can leave handprints or footprints. Well, I guess you can, but you don't have like a flat surface where you can leave fingerprints. So they were doing their best searching through everything, but it was just so hard to find any kind of evidence that they could use. Then on the 17th, doctors have to tell Josie that her mom and sister are gone. And so Josie was actually injured in the part of the brain that helps you speak and communicate. So she's having to process that, but not being able to say anything. So she is just being incredibly, incredibly strong. And while Josie is in the hospital, a TV station is already dramatizing this attack. Josie's only in the hospital for six weeks. And there's already something about like a, an actor's playing the scene of this brutal attack that took away her words. That makes me so upset. That just pisses me off so much. It's like, do you have no decency, guys? Like, are you freaking kidding me? I just hate it. So Josie slowly recovers. And then in late August, over six weeks of being in the hospital, she is able to make the transition back home. So slowly going back home, not staying home, but going home and coming back. And the police are just trying to get a picture of what happened that night. The police had such little to go off of. Like I said, because it's outside, they just can't gather as much evidence and they assume that the attack was unprovoked and from a stranger. And that makes it even more difficult because they just don't have any enemies. 
So they want justice for Josie because they can see her fighting so hard for her life because it's just baffling that she is able to make this recovery after her brain was coming out of her head. So they're like, if she can fight for her life, we need to fight for justice. So they decide to go through hundreds, hundreds of uh, criminals who have been arrested previously with violent histories and single out ones that can fit the profile, that can fit that picture, that e-fit or whatever it's called, that sketch that they got out. So it literally takes hundreds of hours to go through all of these different victims, but they, or excuse me, victims, different criminals, trying to see if any of them fit this very specific narrative that this guy did. So like I said, Josie's trying to transition back into her old life as much as she can, and it's really just going back home slowly. She said that she would like to go to parks because people didn't know her there, and they wouldn't have to feel bad for her. She could just kind of be around normal people and not be in a hospital. Eventually, she's back home full time and she really enjoys that. But at the same time, she doesn't feel safe because this is really close to where she was attacked. So her and her father decide, or I guess her father mainly decides, that they should just move back to New Wales. And this is really nice, too, because Josie had been from New Wales and she had a lot of friends at New Wales, so even if she couldn't really speak, she could still enjoy the time with her friends. And she actually goes back to school, which September, um, so the day after she went back to school, September 9th, September 10th, they found a hammer in the hedge wall, and the hedge wall is that hedge that divides fields, but it actually ends up not being the murder weapon. So the police were just super excited that they had found this thing and it ends up not really being anything and if they're just so frustrated because they're working so hard and they just feel like they're not getting anywhere so while um, Josie's doing really well in school the um, her old teachers accepted her into school and they wanted to help her kind of get back to relearning speaking and language and the police unfortunately have the task of having to go through interviews with her to get her information which has to be so hard for the police to do because that can't be a fun thing to ask a little girl about she's nine or ten years old at this point having to relive that horrible night where she lost oh i don't even think i said this not only did this monster kill his her mom and her sister but he had slain their dog Lucy as well. This monster did not stop at mom and daughter and trying to kill the other one. He also killed the dog. What a nasty human being. Who could do that? So they are just trying to be as respectful and kind to her, not push her too far. And of course, she had the brain injury, so she had a hard time speaking. So the police got as creative as they could by making like a scrapbook for her to kind of help her. And then they also found someone who could make models of that night, like little dolls of that night. And it was so sad because it's almost like she couldn't comprehend what was happening or she was trying to block it out because she would laugh when she like grabbed the one that looked like her mom. On October, or excuse me, in October, I should say, they held Megan and Lynn's funeral, and it was all so very hard for Josie and Sean. They had to accept that half of their life was just gone. Their mom, their sister, their daughter, their wife was just gone. And the murderer who had done it was just out there. And the police were working hard, but they didn't know who it was. They had very little leads. So the police were still working hard, like I said, but they're running out of options. There's not much they can do. They're just trying to figure out what exactly happened to Megan, Lynn, and Josie. But like I said, Meg, or excuse me, Josie is having a hard time speaking, so they don't want to push her too hard, but they also need answers. So they're just being patient with her. On March 7th of 97... They decide to reach out into the public and give some details on what happened 
in hopes to kind of guilt the public, if that makes sense. Like, if they, the murderer had spoken to, like, a friend about what happened, maybe if they saw Josie in the state that she was in or they saw the family, they would feel more inclined, more guilty to give up that person because of what horrific things they did to another human being. So they just kind of left that there and hoped that something would come from that. And eventually, Josie was able to communicate with the police about the events of that night. So this is basically what they got. She was walking with her mom, Josie was walking with her mom and sister, going home from swimming. They were just speaking about their day, just being very casual, when a car drove by and she decided to wave because she's just a friendly, cute, sweet little girl. They all got really quiet when the car stopped, and it was only a little ways in front of them, but it was in their path. A man got out of the car, and she described him as having spiky hair and in about his 20s. And it fit the e-fit that the witnesses had given. He went into the back seat and grabbed a hammer and demanded money. Lynn had explained that she didn't have any money because she was just picking up her daughters, but she could go home and get some. That's when Lynn told Josie to run, and she tried to, but he caught up with her, and that's when he hit her with a hammer. He first led them to the hedge line and tied them up. He used stockings on Josie as a blindfold and ties, and then the towel on Lynn and Megan. He tied Josie to a tree, and Josie could hear him hitting his her mother and hear Lynn's cries for him to stop. Josie eventually passed out from the pain of being hit with a hammer, and then she was left there for about eight hours clinging to life, and somehow she survived. So at this point, the public is getting very anxious because there's this killer out there who just brutally attacked and murdered a dog, two very small little girls, and a mom for no reason. There was no provoke. He just attacked these women. This was the worst crime this area had ever seen, ever. Even, not even this area, but surrounding areas too. So the BBC TV decided to put out a reconstruction of the crime um, based off of Josie's accounts and eyewitness accounts. And that happened on July 9th. And then police finally got a tip. A psychiatrist called and said that he was worried about one of his patients because one, he fit the E profile or the E fit, the police sketch, and two, his actions and his words made them think that he would do this. So that same month on July, in July of 97, a 37-year-old man named Michael Stone was arrested. And that was the man that the psychologist said he thought could be the killer. So a little bit about Mr. Stone. So Michael Stone was originally born with the last name Goodban in Royal Tunbridge, Kent. And Kent, so um, it was in Chillenden, Kent, that this happened. So his mom was Barbara Stone. And the the identity of his father was never known. He also had four siblings that were different fathers as well as they, they assume at least. So Barbara was known to have a lot of short and casual relationships between a lot of men and she married four different times and they weren't always the best men. They were very abusive towards the children and there were actually reports of sexual and physical abuse from her mom's, from the mom's partners, almost all of them. She married one guy specifically named Pete Stone, and eventually that's where the name came from when he changed his name. He was really horrible too, and he was actually reported by um, by people to have been abusive to the kids with a hammer specifically. A hammer. He would abuse little baby children with a hammer. Just, I can't, I can't even imagine that. I can't even imagine that. So he was taken out of that home because of this incident specifically. And unfortunately, in his foster home, he received basically the same abuse, sexual and physical violence. So unfortunately, things did not get better. 
At the age of 14, he accumulated four, excuse me, at the age of 11, he accumulated 14 convictions of things like shopping, shoplifting, burglary, and trespassing. And that behavior did not stop. It just continued into adulthood. It is also said that as a kid, he would steal animals from a pet store. And this is disgusting. He would torture them. He also was reportedly have said to uh, uh, force a young girl to strip at a playground at knife point, which just, how do you go there as a kid? You know, how does your mind get to that point? I just don't get it. It's just horrible. It's sickening, honestly. So as an adult out of the system, he fell into drugs, specifically heroin He would steal to feed his habit, so he would rob people, he would take anything he could to pawn it off and then buy drugs. He was also said to have heard voices, and at one point he freaked out a drug dealer and threatened to cut off somebody's head because of something with voices going on in his head. He eventually ended up in jail with a three-year sentence for robbery, burglary, and grievous bodily harm. And in addition to that, so I'm not sure if this is specifically the grievous bodily harm case or if he's being arrested and he did this, but around that same time, so this is in like the 80s, he had stabbed an old school friend in the chest while he was sleeping on his sofa. The police came and got him and he put up a fight and gouged out one of the police officer's eyes. So... He got three years in prison for all that stuff, the stuff in the beginning that we don't have many details about, but then he got four years added on to that. So he was out of jail by 1987, and when he was out of jail, he was put back into jail for eight years for a robbery, but he only served six years in jail. Okay, just a quick pause from the subject matter. So I don't know what happened to my computer. I know that um, this is two weeks late now, so it's like this should be another episode that's coming out, but for some reason, my computer just completely froze, and I finished the episode, but it didn't record anything, and then I couldn't turn on my computer, so that's why there's this huge gap in the episode releases, so I'm so sorry about that, but I will finish this episode, so back to it. So, after he was released, after only serving six years... He was in and out of psychiatric hospitals and the authorities actually specifically say that if he would have gotten the necessary help he needed from those hospitals, these crimes would not have happened. So they really just say that the system completely failed him. The psychiatric hospitals and the people working it say that he was really bad about taking his medication and when he was on it, he was okay. But when he didn't take it, he was just completely unstable. So that makes this next part just kind of hard to read. But he gets let go, like a lot. And when he's free, he would live with his mother because he really didn't have anywhere else to go. And he would go around the area of Kent robbing remote areas or like really small areas in the country and small towns. Because he knew that these small areas, these little towns, they wouldn't have like CCTV footage or cameras or anything like that. So he wouldn't get caught. So he was just continuously doing stuff like that. And no one was really doing too much about it. No one was giving him help. Maybe he would get thrown in jail or something. But there was just not much that was happening. So while he was in the hospital for like his in and out, he was in it. He said specifically, and this is a quote from one of his psychiatrists, he would say he feels like murdering children with a hammer. And the last time he had said that was five days before the attack. Why was he free then? That's the question that I'm asking constantly. Why was this guy free when he was not okay? It was so clear that he was not okay, but he was free. So Stone was in custody and he was being harassed by other inmates. So this is after he killed, um, or I should say allegedly killed Megan and Lynn. 
So he was being harassed by other inmates because that's just kind of how prison justice works. So he was moved. And he, well, I should say, the inmates were making up stories about the crime. And then he was getting, like, just beat up because of the the nature of the crime. The people had heard whispers and they just kept going on with it. So he requested to move to a more private cell for his own safety. And he was placed next to a cell, or excuse me, in a cell next to a heroin Wow, I'm having a hard time, guys. Sorry. A heroin addict named Damien Daly. On September 26th, three days later, literally three days later, Damien came along with Barry Thompson, Barry Thompson, <laughs> sorry, such a common name, I don't know why I had a hard time with that, and Mark Jen- Jennings, who claimed that Stone had confessed everything to them, literally like everything to them. Sorry, I can't like get comfortable with this mic right now. It's weird because I'm jumping into this partway through to redo it. So, like, I can't, I'm not comfortable, but whatever, it's fine. I'll push through. I'm, I'm a strong person. I can get through this. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So, Damien claimed that Stone spoke to him through the gap between the heating pipes. And when you think about that, that's weird. You know, like, just putting your face into a vent. But you're also, you also have to take into consideration, this is isolation. And this is three days later. So, he must have been at his breaking point. And like, dude, I would put my face in a vent if I hadn't talked to someone and there was someone next to me that I could have some kind of like human interaction with. So it does make sense. All their stories lined up, but it was basically all the information that the public already knew. It wasn't any new information about the crime that was, uh, that only the killer would know. So that was suspicious to say the least. The main witnesses in his trial were these jail inmates, and that's what, like, the foundation of the whole trial was, because there was no physical evidence. Gosh, I just am having such a hard time. Physical evidence. Um, Like I said in the beginning, this was a murder that happened outside, where there's no hard surfaces that you can leave fingerprints for, and animals come because it was... It wasn't a crazy amount of time, but it was long enough for animals to potentially come or bugs or wind to blow any kind of evidence away. So these witnesses, quote unquote, I should say, witnesses were really important. There was also another witness that was pretty important, and it was a friend of Stone's, and her name was Sherry Bate. Bat. Bat, I should say. She said that she remembered Stone coming over to her house or the house she was staying at um, around that time she can't specifically remember and she said he had a blood-stained shirt. So that was just her very small testimony that she had. On October 23rd, 1998, Michael Stone was convicted of murder and attempted murder of Josie. So two counts of murder. Because, like I said, there was really no physical evidence. Those witnesses were all they had. And just the fact that he was familiar with the area, that was another really key point that they used in the trial. So it just, it seemed so flimsy. So after the trial was finished, Thompson and Jennings literally confirmed that they were lying. And one guy said he was lying his pants off at the trial and that they got paid off by the press. So I don't understand how the trial couldn't have been thrown out, but somehow it wasn't. Then, Bat's mother, so Bat was the friend that said she um, Stone came with the uh, bloody shirt, Bat's mother literally disowned her because she said her daughter was lying. So that's three out of four. That is not good odds. And yet somehow, still... At the same time, though, you got to think, like, humans, some people are crazy, so who knows? You just, it's just horrible. Like, it was almost directly after the trial. So, Michael Stone has continued to plead his innocence, and his legal team believed him. Obviously, of course, they did. So, they were able to challenge the conviction, and a reorder was, or a retrial was ordered. The other three witnesses withdrew their testimony, but Damien Daly uh, stood very firm on his. This case got so much attention because of Stone's past, obviously, with 
all the horrible things that happened, all of his crimes, his upbringing, just all that stuff really kind of sucked the public in for all the wrong reasons. And he was once again found guilty in 2001, and the judge said that Damien's testimony could have been the rise or the fall of this case, whether or not he was being honest with it, or if he would take it back. So I think they were really hoping that he wouldn't, in all honesty. I really think that they just wanted to find who did this, and sometimes that just happens. It's almost, it's not like this, but it's, it's the... mm, I don't want to say it's like this, but something similar happened with the West Memphis Three. They just wanted to find who did this horrible, heinous crime, and they found someone that fit the buck. And this is kind of what's happening, where they they found someone that hit, fit the buck. And who knows if this is if he is innocent or not? Let's hope that. Well, I don't want to say. I hope he's guilty because that's horrible. But I just hope that all the right things happened in this case. But it's so hard to know for sure. So Stone's barrister, which I was going to look that up, but I didn't. So that's homework for you guys. Mark McDonald says, Given what we know about the lack of evidence presented to the jury to the actual trial, this confession is so profound, significant, that it goes to the hearts of the conviction of Michael Stone. It's unsafe. Which... Is he wrong? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. He's not wrong. But is the confession true? That's another question. So the um, barrister, he contacted the CCRC, the Criminal Case Review Commission, in 2010 because the key witnesses withdrew their statements. But unfortunately... They, the CCRC found that the conviction should be upheld and they said that there was no new evidence and rejected him. So they decided to try again. They had an inmate. Well, they had new evidence. It was an inmate. His name was Levi Belfield. He had already been charged for murder and he is said to have um, confessed to the killing of Lynn and Megan and the attempted murder of Josie. So, Michael Stone's defense team asked them to reconsider, which, like, kind of makes me crack up because it's, like, so polite. Like, can you please just reconsider this? Like, I feel like there's so many, like, official terms. Like, we need this retrial. We need to deny the evidence, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, but could you reconsider this small thing? (laughs) Um... So, going to go into Levi Belfield. His M.O. fit the crime. He would attack women with hammers. He was known to drive, uh, he was known as the truck stop killer. He was convicted of a murder and kidnapping of Millie Dowler in 2011. He had abducted her in 2002 while she was walking home from school. He had also been convicted of three other crimes, murder and the Molly Dill, Molly Dower, excuse me, that was what got him. But he also was convicted of murdering a 19-year-old Marsha McDowell in 2003. McDonnell, sorry, McDonnell. Amelia Delagrange, this is so hard, Delagrange. I'm sorry, this is not funny. I'm just laughing at how sad I am in life with pronunciations. Um, she was 22 and it was in 2004 and in that same year, he attempted to kill an 18-year-old Katie Sheed. He ran her down with his car, but she survived her injuries. Now, most people believe that he is responsible for even more crimes. Paul Bacon had made another appeal with this new information, but once again, it got rejected. And the reason why it got rejected is because this is hearsay again. So, Levi Belfield actually never admits to admitting this, I guess. Um, I think it's the BBC News or BBC Four, something like that. They got all this information. They actually did a documentary that doesn't exist because I've looked and looked and looked and I can't find this stupid documentary, but it supposedly it exists, whatever. So they did this huge uh, investigation on this case and they actually reached out to Levi to get his statement to see what he says. And he says that he did not admit to anything and that um, 
he never did. He doesn't admit now and he never did before. Also, while denying his guilt in this um, crime, he also says that Stone wrote him three letters asking him to confess and stating that he would be compensated for his confession. So, I think it's very shaky. I don't know how I feel about Michael Stone in this spot. I, ugh, it's just so tough because this did happen a long time ago now, but you just never know. And he's been fighting so hard for his innocence, but there are people that do that. That's just what happens, unfortunately. Even if you're guilty, people will stay say that they're not. So who knows? Um, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts, but let's talk about, let's talk about Josie, this incredibly amazing survivor. Josie has grown up to become a textile artist, so it's really cool. She uses old recycled fabric to make these landscapes with, like, the cloths. She, like, sews it on there. She also bought her mom's horse, Rosie, because her mom really loved, um, like, horses, she also bought her childhood home. So not the home where everything happened in. She bought the one that was in um, Wales. Sean, Dr. Sean, the father, Dr. Sean Russell, is the head of the horticultural department at the University of Bangor. They both work together, so they're both really close still. They raise money for charities, not like their own specific one, but charities that they feel passionate about. So like whether it's for children or animals they're just continuously helping people. And Josie still talks about her story. She doesn't really like go around and speaking about it, but she will talk about it. So it, they just, they overcame and survived somehow these horrible crimes. And it's just really amazing to see that. So guys, that is the end of this tragedy of the Russell family. I hope you guys were informed on Josie being just the incredible baddie that she is and then Sean just being strong you know um I apologize for <laughs> missing the Monday mark I was doing so good but I've oh my gosh it's been just so crazy and I think I already talked about how crazy my life has been I've, if you can't tell I'm gonna tell you now I'm just a super organized person so like I literally think about my whole week and think okay this is the one day that I can record. This is the one time that it works. So when my computer just completely froze, I was like, I don't have another day for this. So I kind of panicked a little bit, um, but it was nice to like chill a little bit, you know, but I'm on it. This is a slip up one time thing. It won't happen again. So guys, if you want to check out pics of the stuff on the case, wow. That was beautifully articulated. If you want to check out some pictures on this case, that'll be on Instagram, YDWK Podcast. Otherwise, it's on Facebook as well, YDWK, or you don't want to know. It's just you don't want to know. If you have case suggestions, um, any stories you want to tell me, uh, if you have movie suggestions too, I would love those. That's YDWK Podcast at gmail.com. I believe that's all. Oh, okay. So in the week in between these two recordings, I saw Guardians of the Galaxy. Good. Nothing like Spider-Man level, but good. I liked it. I would see it again. Okay. Um, that's it. I think that's all the stuff I have for you guys. I hope you listened and are informed and all that good stuff. All right. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Nate. And I'm Andrew. And we are the hosts of Two Beards Please Podcast. I asked him if he'd ever done this before. He said that he had. So you're asking these questions while you're on the operating table? Just before we start, right. So you didn't think to ask these questions nah. like in a consultation visit? I really or didn't something care. I just wanted lines? to prolong the hot knife <laughs> cauterization as long as I could. I also had some adults come to my door, not with kids. Did you give them candy? I did. What's wrong with you? What's they deserve apples. <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite comedy movie that I could think of in four hours when some idiot says, what's your favorite four comedy movies of all time? <laughs>
Okay. This beer is based on a limited amount of time, and I only had two beers. <laughs> laugh with us or laugh at us. Either way, you're laughing, and we're responsible. Find all of the links to our social media as well as major listening platforms on our website, twobeardsplease.com.